I'd like to begin this morning's reflection on the accomplishment in virtue from the Samyutta Nikaya. This is the forerunner, the precursor of the rising of the sun, that is, the dawn. So too, for one, this, so too, this is the forerunner and precursor of the arising of the Noble Eightfold Path. That is accomplishment in virtue. When one is accomplished in virtue, it is to be expected that one will develop and cultivate this noble eightfold path. And how does one who is accomplished in virtue develop and cultivate the noble eightfold path? Here, one develops right view, which has as its final goal the removal of lust, the removal of hatred, the removal of delusion. And then it goes through one... um, One develops each of the path factors, right thought, right um, um, action, etc. All the way through to one develops right concentration, which has as its final goal the removal of lust, the removal of hatred, and the removal of delusion. It is in this way that one who has accomplished, one who is accomplished in virtue, develops and cultivates the noble eightfold path. When we come to this retreat, we read the information about the five precepts. We review the information about the five precepts. We agree to the information about the five precepts. We sign that we will follow the five precepts. We know the five precepts. And it's not merely an administrative um, custom. It's actually a profound part of this practice. I think each time we break the five precepts, even in minor ways, it's a really important signal to us that there was operating in some way some lust, some hatred, or some delusion. So it helps to take the precepts, to take this, um, this set of kind of five training guidelines, because it puts a framework around our actions. And should we veer outside of that framework, oop, we notice it because we had already made a commitment. We had already made a practice vow. So it helps us. It helps guide us. There are many benefits and reasons for practicing the precepts, for developing our virtue. We can understand the precepts as being simple acts of kindness that allow us to live in safety and in harmony and in joy with other beings. We can consider the precepts to be ways to protect the mind because if we don't live with the precepts, chances are we'll be agitating our own minds. We can consider the precepts as support for mindfulness because we kind of make... um, Um, make that framework around our actions and become more mindful of what we do, why we do it. And should our actions ever go beyond the breach, those precept boundaries, whoa, we suddenly become aware. And then we reflect. We can also find that maintaining our virtue is a tremendous support for the stability of the mind and the deepening of concentration. 
because a mind that is virtuous is tranquil and calm. And it's also a profound opportunity for insight, especially insight into dukkha, into unsatisfactoriness. If we investigate any moments in which uh, there's an urge to breach a precept or there's an urge to cross over some virtuous bound boundary that we uh, already understand in our mind would be good, and yet we want to do it anyway, Ooh. Good opportunity for insight and to contemplate the unsatisfactoriness, the dukkha that comes if we should breach those precepts, if we should let our um, virtue slide. But in many ways, we can understand the practice of virtue as a cultivation of the ability to of the ability to refrain from, the ability to enact restraint. Because it's understood that we're all not perfectly, fully enlightened, which means that there are defilements operating. So we have to have respect for those defilements, wisdom around those defilements, set limits to those defilements. Because we know until we are completely, until we are completely fully enlightened, We have to deal with those defilements. And we can't assume that they're not there. Just because we are a basically good person, perhaps. Nor can we assume that they're not present in anyone else. And when we recognize that the defilements are a part of all unenlightened minds, I think we can have a lot more patience and compassion with working with these defilements. Now, the final goal is this removal of lust, removal of hatred, removal of delusion. That's the culmination of the Noble Eightfold Path. I like to contemplate this complete and total removal of lust, removal of hatred, removal of delusion. We all know moments in which lust, hate, and delusion are not arising. So we have tastes of this. I love to contemplate what the mind would be like, what life would be like, if these forces were never to arise again. In the Samyutta Nikaya, there's an interesting discourse in which it's really acknowledged that we're not perfect and that we're, we've got work to do. And there's, um, it says, in many ways, the Blessed One criticizes and censures, and it goes through each of the precepts. I'll read it based upon um, the taking of what's not given. 
In many ways, the Blessed One criticizes and censures the taking of what's not given. And he says, abstain from taking what's not given. Now I have taken what is not given to such and such an extent. That was not proper. That was not good. But though I feel regret over this, that evil deed of mine is done, and it cannot be undone. Having reflected thus, he abandons the taking of what not is what not given, and he abstains from taking what is not given in the future. Thus there comes about the abandoning of that evil deed. Thus there comes about the transcending of that evil deed. Now this is a very simple sequence. First of all, it's a real clear acknowledgement that we are not all our haunts and have not completely removed lust, hate, and delusion from our, our minds. And so we must face the defilements. We must work with them. There's no need to feel shame about it. That's the process that we're engaged in. To realize Nibbana, to, um, to come to the complete awakening, which is characterized by the eradication of lust, hate, and delusion means we've got to work with them all along the way. We have to face them when they arise and work skillfully with them. The Buddha does not say that we should feel guilty and beat ourselves up over it because actually that would disempower our ability to face them and to work skillfully with them. So it's a simple reflection. We know this is not good. Right? That's the first statement. The Buddha censure, criticizes and censures stealing. We know this is not good. But I have done it anyway. We reflect. We realize I have done it anyway. And though I feel regret over this, it is done. It cannot be undone. So we might feel some remorse. We might feel some regret. We might feel the effect of acting in unwholesome ways. But it's as simple as that. I think it is important to feel the regret, to feel the remorse, to actually have a response to the recognition that we have really, um, in some ways, in some actions, in some moments, fallen below, below our own ethical standards. But that doesn't mean we beat ourselves up forever. It doesn't mean we think we are a terrible person. That feeling of regret is a sign, is a signal. It's a powerful signal that we can welcome and learn from. But it's not one that we dwell in, become obsessed with, and build up stories around being a horrible person and feeling guilt to keep Um, kind of making ourselves suffer. It's more like um, a a brief pain when you're, you know, like you put your hand in the fire and it hurts, right? It's good. It tells you to step out. We breach a precept. It feels bad. You know, like we, we feel guilt or regret. We feel, sorry, we feel regret or remorse. And so we, we, we are, have a signal to not do it again in the future. The problem with guilt which is different than regret and remorse, is guilt tends to build up a whole self-story of being that kind of person, which actually will increase through the identification with the story. It will increase the, uh, the chance that we'll do it again in the future. It'll keep us stuck there. <laughs> 
But the Buddha simply says, though I feel regret over this, it is done. And it cannot be undone. So it's, what, it, it's somewhat matter-of-fact. Having reflected thus, one abandons the taking of what's not given and abstains from the taking of what's not given again in the future. So once we feel that regret and remorse, we realize, oops, in that moment, the defilements were, were strong. They were stronger than my mindfulness. So I'm going to recommit right now to maintaining that precept in the future. I'm going to reestablish my virtue right now. So there's no story of being the person who did this horrible thing. There's the recognition that in that moment, I did something that breached the precepts. I crossed my virtue, crossed that that line of virtue. Then um, there's a reflection, a feeling, oh, I feel regret, but it's done. So in the future, I'm going to be more careful. I'm going to learn something from that. Thus, this comes about the abandoning of that evil deed. Thus, it comes about the transcending of that evil deed. So although we might say, what does he mean? The deed is already done. You can't undo that. He already recognized that. But the transcending comes through the commitment to not create the pattern of redoing that again. It takes the power away from the pattern of that defilement. And there's something so very matter-of-fact about this. And I wanted to bring this, this discourse into this reflection on virtue because there comes a time in everybody's retreats, in long retreats, where there's something happens where we do something or think something or remember something we have done that breached our virtue in some way. What matters is is not what terrible thing it was that we did, but how do we respond to it? Can we be this clear where we recognize it? We feel the remorse, but we see that it's done. We commit to not doing it again in the future, and in that commitment, we realize that we are freed from that pattern. Through that commitment, that commitment of restraint, that commitment of refraining from, is a kind of freedom from that pattern. In the Anguttara Nikaya, there's a dialogue between Ananda, Venerable Ananda, and the Buddha, where Venerable Ananda asks, what is the purpose and blessing of virtue? And the Buddha says, to be free of self-reproach and feelings of guilt and enjoy a clear conscience. And then Ananda asks, and what is the purpose and blessings of a clear conscience? And the Buddha says, it brings joy in wholesome thoughts and actions, happiness with progress made, and gives incentive for further striving. And Ananda asks, and what results from that? And the Buddha says, one experiences exaltation in one's heart and draws towards the good and perfect bliss. And from that results deep calm and insight. So the blessing of virtue leads to self, uh, an absence of self-reproach, self-judgment, an an end of feelings of guilt, 
and a kind of um, confidence in this clear conscience, which leads to experiencing joy in wholesome states, happiness within our, within our own experience of the mind. That inspires us to develop our practice further. And we experience this uplifting of the heart that is drawn towards what is good and what is pure. That leads to deep calm and concentration and liberating insight. All based upon virtue. And so I'll close just with the reminding you of the first verse I read. And how does one who is accomplished in virtue develop and cultivate the Noble Eightfold Path? Here, one develops each factor of the Noble Eightfold Path, which has as its final goal the removal of lust, the removal of hatred, and the removal of delusion. It is in this way that one who is accomplished in virtue develops and cultivates this noble eightfold path. Enjoy your practice today.